0: The names Miso and Miffy don't mean much to most Americans. The abbreviations are cryptic, and they sound like the names of cartoon characters. In recent months, though, they've been cropping up in all sorts of places, in street art and engraved on jewellery. They've been the subject of viral videos, subway ads, and even a banner towed by an aeroplane over Arizona. But Miso and Miffy are not cartoon characters. They're Miso Prostol and Miffy Pristone, or RU486 a pair of drugs regulated for use by the FDA and included in the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines For the first time this year they're expected to account for the majority of abortions in America and they're the next front line in a 50 year battle over the right to terminate a pregnancy In December the FDA permanently relaxed restrictions to enable abortion medication to be prescribed online and delivered in the post The same month Texas brought in jail sentences and a $10,000 fine for anyone doing so. Pro-choice activists across the country are stockpiling and anti-abortion legislators are readying new statewide bans. Both sides now expect that Roe versus Wade will fall. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what happens if the Supreme Court overturns the right to an abortion in America? The question of what comes after Roe v. Wade is no longer an abstract one. This week, a leaked document obtained by Politico suggested that the court is preparing to overturn the precedent entirely. But what will the post-Roe era look like in practice for American women? In an election year, what happens to the politics of this most divisive issue? And if the justices do overturn a 50-year-old precedent and hand decisions on abortion back to the states? What might the Supreme Court do next? So, the Supreme Court appears to be on the verge of making a historical decision with really wide ranging effects in American society. So with me to try and make sense of what's going to happen next are John Fazman and Mian Ridge. Regular listeners will know both John and Mian. Mian writes about social affairs for The Economist based in Washington DC. Informally we think of her as our culture wars correspondent. Mian how are you doing? You must have had a very busy week.
1: I've had a busy week. I'm myself very well thanks John. Um, I'm sharing my office today with a Jack Russell who's just hopped to my lap so I hope she's not going to join in the conversation
0: how is Betsy?
1: Betsy's very well, thank you.
0: I'm pleased to hear that. And John, how are you doing? What's going on in New York?
2: I'm fine. Good to be back. Um, What is going on in New York? Not much to speak of here. It was a good week for Donald Trump in, in Ohio. His endorsement of J.D. Vance seems to have worked. And in the 7th District, you have his former employee, Max Miller, whom his ex-press secretary accused of physical abuse, won his primary. So Trump's word looks like it's still pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. What do you both make of J.D.
2: Vance, who looks quite likely to be the next Republican senator for Ohio? I think Vance-Ryan is a really interesting matchup, right? Ryan is clearly trying to become a Democratic senator from Ohio in the Sherrod Brown mold. Uh, he represented an area around Youngstown, working class area around Youngstown for, for many years. The question is whether the party label is so toxic that... Ryan, with his long roots in Ohio politics, will lose to a first time candidate backed by a venture capitalist.
1: That is going to be a fascinating race. I haven't been following it that closely this week. because I've kind of had my head in the Supreme Court and Roe.
0: Yes, this is an absolutely huge story and a great scoop by Politico who got hold of the leak. Mian, can you just begin by outlining some details of the case that the court is considering? You know, why has Roe come across the desks of the nine justices again.
1: So we've known since last May that the Supreme Court justices are considering this case in Mississippi, which concerns a ban in Mississippi that's been blocked by a lower court, but it would basically block all abortions in that state from 15 weeks. That's highly contentious because Roe versus Wade, this very important landmark ruling from 1973, said that women have a right to an abortion up until the end of the second trimester. Casey was in 92 and that slightly tweaked that and changed it from a trimester limit to a viability limit, that is 23, 24 weeks. There's been speculation for months that the Supreme Court's looking at a 15 week ban because it might use it to overturn Roe and Casey. So if it upholds the 15 week ban, or e- indeed even if it drops Roe's current standard to 15 weeks, that's effectively either overturning Roe or weakening it substantially. So we've known that something big and probably historic is coming, but we certainly weren't expecting to see a draft leaked before in this way. So that's historic.
0: And me and, you've had your hands full making sense of all of this. Another person who's had a busy week is Steve Maisie, our esteemed Supreme Court correspondent. And you spoke to him earlier this week about what was in that Alito draft opinion.
1: Yes, Steve and I managed to grab a few minutes to talk. And he told me that even though the fact of the leak was a shock, the actual content didn't surprise him that much.
3: It's the familiar basic argument we've heard from abortion opponents for a very long time, which is there is no right to abortion in the constitution. There is no right to privacy in the constitution. And the majority opinion from Harry Blackmun when Roe v. Wade was decided in, in 1973 just sort of makes up a constitutional right out of whole cloth. But what was surprising to me and to many was the tone of this opinion. Alito can be acerbic, he can be pretty sharp, he likes to hoist liberals on their own petard. But in this opinion, in, this, in a case that is this sensitive, the kind of sneering and take no prisoners tone of the opinion felt really aggressive. Um, There are no lines softening the blow of revoking a right that nearly one in four American women is going to turn to during their lifetime.
1: It's uh, unprecedented for a full written opinion to be leaked ahead of a decision. And there's been a lot of speculation about who the leak could have come from and what their agenda might have been. Who might it benefit and, and who might it damage this leak?
3: Who's damaged? The institution is certainly damaged. The fact that this is such an unprecedented move by someone inside the court is suggestive of the possibility that, you know, there's something rotten in the state of SCOTUS. There's dissent which is so strong that there's at least one person who's willing to break all the norms and confidences that has kept the Supreme Court and its players such an intimate and family-like group over all these years. I mean, the the bigger context here is that for the first time in at least 50 years, we have a Supreme Court with no center, uh, a six to three court, twice as many conservatives as liberals making decisions for a society that is roughly split down the middle, is itself a prescription for trouble and potential feelings that the court is not a legitimate, fair-minded actor in the way that it once was. Um, As to who benefits, there are a couple of theories. Some think that it's a clerk to a liberal justice who put this out as a way of, I don't know, stirring the pot, igniting protests. Another possibility is that, and this to me makes a little more sense, although who knows, that it's a clerk for a conservative justice who was watching the coalition that Justice Alito built fall apart. On that theory, it's a way to lock in a vote by kind of shaming whoever might be wavering into keeping the faith.
1: And related to that possibility, Steve, CNN has reported that Chief Justice Roberts isn't on board with a complete reversal of Roe and Casey and still supports a possible third way, that is upholding Mississippi's 15-week ban without explicitly overturning Roe. Do do you think that's still a possibility? Are there any other options on the table?
3: Well, that take from Roberts is consistent with what we heard at the oral argument. The chief justice was the only one of the six conservative justices who expressed any interest in the original question posed, the less radical question, which is whether some abortion bans before 23 weeks might be constitutional. It no longer seems in the realm of possibility, if it ever was, that the court will strike down Mississippi's law. The 15-week ban is going to be upheld. The only question is whether that will be accomplished by recrafting the undue burden standard from the Casey decision without the viability line, which would be less radical but much messier, as the complicated sentence I just uttered suggests, Um, or if it's going to be a sweeping reversal of Roe and the long line of cases that have been built on top of Roe. Occam's razor tells us, I think, in spades that Roe is going to disappear, but Probably with a somewhat less imperiously written opinion that's been softened a little bit in the editing process.
1: It wouldn't be the first time that the Supreme Court's overturned its own long standing precedent. But in the past, when that's happened, precedents have been overturned to expand rights, whereas this would restrict a right. How significant is that difference?
3: Oh, that distinction is huge, and that's a great point. Justice Alito mentions three cases in the text of this draft opinion when the court overruled itself. Um, And at least two of those, three, if you analyze it in a certain way, including Brown versus Board of Education, involved expanding rights. So abandoning a precedent that was providing a a narrower or a non-existent right in in the Constitution. Um, And then he adds a a long, uh, one of the longest footnotes you'll see in a Supreme Court opinion. It runs three pages. With dozens of examples of cases where the court has overturned earlier precedents. But looking at those, nearly all of them involve either tweaks to constitutional rights, or maybe shaving off a bit here or there, or the recognition of new constitutional rights. Not a single one involves the abrogation or the cancellation of a constitutional right. This is new. We have not seen. A reversal of precedent like this ever.
0: Mian, we're going to get on to the real world effects of overturning Roe, which would fall, I think, largely upon low-income women in America. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, just wanted to stick on Alito's opinion and on Roe. A lot of the smart takes I've read, and a lot of my clever colleagues, including Idris and Charlotte, think that Roe was poorly decided and always rested on shaky ground. Is that right? Is that your view of the original opinion by Justice Harry Blackmun in 1973?
1: I think it's really important to to say that Roe does rest on an extremely controversial interpretation of the Constitution. This idea that the due process clause in the 14th Amendment provides a right to privacy that protects a pregnant woman's right to choose. And the critics of it haven't only been Conservatives, Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that Roe tried to do too much too fast. You know, she suggested it would have been better to ground the right to abortion and an equal protection clause. But she was, I should add, very supportive of abortion rights. And, and I should also say here that it's one thing to say that, that Roe is imperfectly reasoned. And it's quite another to say that the right that women have depended on in America for half a century should be taken away And if the Supreme Court does decide to take it away, I don't think it will be because it's imperfectly reasoned or or flawed in some way.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mian. But because of that shakiness and because so many constitutional scholars have looked at it and thought that this was judicial overreach, Roe really launched a whole conservative political movement to overthrow that precedent. And this campaign, which appears to be coming to fruition now, has really been, what, 40 years, almost 50 years in the making, John?
2: It has. That's a lot of activism. I don't think that it's because of the shakiness that the activism arose. I think it was political shrewdness on the right to recognize that this was an issue that could bring evangelical voters into their camp and could really energize them in a way that few others couldn't. I think the shakiness was unquestionably clear to people on both sides of the reproductive rights debate, but I think the activism was thoughtfully organized by Republican strategists. It's certainly true that Roe was a radical decision at the time of its making, but undoing Roe, especially in the intemperate almost contemptuous way that Samuel Alito has done it is equally radical. And I think that if Roe inflamed American politics in one direction for many years, reversing it in this way will do nothing to quell those fires. It'll only it'll only keep them going. So, I mean, we have this draft opinion. What happens next?
1: So behind the doors of the Supreme Court is all guesswork. We don't know what will happen. And it's really difficult to say what effect the leak could have. But I think we can safely say that there are three or maybe four possible outcomes when the court rules. One, it could uphold Roe, that seems most unlikely because it's an article of faith in the conservative legal movement that Roe is flawed and it should go. Two, it does what I think the Chief Justice would like it to do, which is to change the limit from 23 weeks to 15 weeks. The other possibility is it could shelve a a final decision by suggesting somehow that viability isn't the right limit, doing that would mean it would have to come back later to scrap row if that's what it wants to do so it does seem more likely that row will be overturned but maybe in a way that deals with some of the worries that have arisen as a result of this leak to do with due process rights
0: okay that's clear thank you in a minute we'll visit two states that offer clues to what a post row era might look like but first your usual reminder that what you hear on the show is just a fraction of what The Economist has to offer. Mian and John, when you haven't been glued to the SCOTUS news, what else has grabbed your attention from our pages this week?
1: Uh, I've really enjoyed um, our coverage of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. I think it's been very sort of engaging, but measured and tells you everything you need to know about it.
2: And how about you, John? I loved our package on why London is so attractive to dirty money. It was succinct and damning and thorough. Um, which generally describes the work of the colleague who wrote that almost invariably. That's certainly true.
0: Big shout out to Matt V. You'll find the best offer to subscribe at economist.com slash US pod. That links in the notes for this episode. Even with Roe versus Wade in place, access to abortion in different states already differs widely, of course. And as the future of Roe is looking shakier than ever, state-level restrictions are diverging yet further. Our correspondent Stevie Hertz has been in Missouri, which has one of the strictest legal environments in the country. And it's one of 13 states with so-called trigger laws in place that could ban abortion entirely if and when Roe versus Wade is overturned.
4: I'm standing outside the last abortion clinic in Missouri. It's in St. Louis, about a 10-minute train ride from the Gateway Arch. It's a pretty conspicuous building at the side of a major road. It's got Planned Parenthood and big letters all over it, and a really large sign that says, 90 years, then, now, and tomorrow. Missouri is one of six states in the nation that only has one abortion clinic left. If you want to get the procedure done here, you have to wait 72 hours between the first appointment and actually being able to do it, and state law says that women must be told that the life of each human being begins at conception, and they have to be warned of the psychological damage that the procedure can cause. The parking lot is pretty quiet, there are some, mothers with kids and young women. But if you're a woman in Missouri who wants an abortion, you don't have to come here. You can go 15 miles down the road to a clinic in Illinois, where the situation is very different. To get to the Illinois clinic, it's a 10-minute walk, and then a Metrolink train, and then a bus. St. Louis sits on a curve of the Mississippi. The river runs wide and slow here, and for about 300 miles marks the border between Missouri and Illinois. As you pass the Gateway Arch, the 600-foot monument to westward expansion, you cross the state boundary. And when it comes to abortion regulation, you enter a completely different world.
5: Next station be Main
3: Street.
4: The Planned Parenthood facility over the border is very different to the one in Missouri. It looks much more like a hospital. It opened in 2019, and its signs say, now open, rather than saying, still open. There are more protesters outside, two people praying silently and listening to hymns. There are big signs saying choose life with pictures and illustrations of babies and children. And there's a wooden gallows with what it says is an illustration of an eight-week-old embryo in utero and promoting an abortion pill reversal website. And it's not just what happens outside that's different at this facility. Here, if a woman wants an abortion, her doctor can speak to her as she sees fit, and the procedure can happen that day. The fact that these two facilities are so close to each other is not by accident.
5: You don't have to guess what the future of abortion access is going to look like in this country. You just need to look at places like Missouri. Dr. Colleen McNicholas is Planned Parenthood's chief medical officer in the region.
4: Her experience is a window into an America after Roe.
5: We have now for a couple of years seen the flight of Missourians out of the state of Missouri, right? Missouri has made it so difficult for folks to access care. It was a pretty clear decision that we needed to provide space, build space and capacity across the river in Illinois. In 2010, just over 6,000
4: abortions took place in Missouri. In 2020, only 167 did. But that same year, over 6,000 women who lived in Missouri had their abortions across the river in Illinois. And it's not just Missourians who are going to Fairview Heights.
5: Since Texas has implemented and enforced their abortion ban, we have seen a tremendous increase in the number of patients we're seeing, not just from Texas, but from all of the states in between. And in just a few weeks, when the Supreme Court hands down what we expect to be a devastating decision, our southern Illinois region is, is looking to see an influx of anywhere from 14,000 to 30,000 potential patients.
4: For those people, it's not just a question of finding a clinic and getting there. Having secured an appointment, other obstacles remain.
6: One of the barriers is that you can't use your insurance if you are from the state of Missouri for anything that has to do with an
4: abortion. Michelle Landau is the head of the Missouri Abortion Fund, which helps people pay for the procedure. Last year, the average cost was $671.
6: So that is something that a person would have to have out of pocket on the day of their appointment. And unfortunately for some people, that's just not possible. The
4: Missouri Fund just pays for medical costs, but there are now 90 such funds across the country, and others go further, funding travel, accommodation, and childcare. In the 48 hours following the Supreme Court leak this week, the Missouri Abortion Fund received $150,000 in donations and saw recurring contributions double. Ms. Lando hopes this newly galvanised support will continue. I think that a lot of people have a tendency
5: to think of abortion as a political issue or a social issue, and it is not. It is a healthcare issue that has been severely politicized.
7: What I would like is for women to have access to real medical care, and abortion isn't medical care. Abortion is just ending the life of
4: an unborn child. Mary Elizabeth Coleman also has her sights set on a post-Roy future. She's a lawyer and a Missouri state representative, and she recently introduced a bill that would be the first of its kind in the country.
7: So what it does is it says that anybody who aids or abets in helping a woman obtain an illegal abortion would be liable for
4: a civil lawsuit by any citizen of the state of Missouri. That's the same novel enforcement structure as a law passed in Texas late last year, which the Supreme Court hasn't blocked. But Ms. Coleman's bill goes even further beyond the boundaries of her home state to cover Missourians seeking an abortion anywhere. Abortion
7: is the preeminent civil rights issue of our time. It shouldn't matter how old you are or where you're located, whether you're able to have the protection of the law. And so this is that next
4: step of making sure that we're able to protect the unborn. The bill hasn't gained traction in the Missouri legislature, which is coming to the end of its session. But if the Supreme Court cuts back Roe, it hands more power back to state houses the bill could act as a model for the next stage of anti-abortion legislation. And that the legislative fight will continue long after Roe is one thing on which both pro-choice and anti-abortion advocates can agree.
7: Even though Roe v. Wade is 50 years old, you saw last year over 100 bills about abortion passed around the country. That's an onslaught, a huge amount, on both the pro-choice and the pro-life side. And that's partially because I think taking it out of the political process is such a failure.
0: Mean as we've already said, this draft opinion from Samuel Alito might change before the court issues it. But just imagine that it goes into force as written. What would be the practical effect of that on women in America? What would actually change in practice?
1: It's a really good question. So something like three quarters of abortions already take place in states that wouldn't ban abortion if Roe was overturned. So if Roe was overturned, we'd have a sort of intensification of an existing problem, rather than the creation of a new one. That's not to say that the effects wouldn't be dreadful. There are two reasons why it's difficult to predict. One is that we don't know what clinics will open on the borders of states that will ban abortion. Secondly, I think the most significant unknown here is how many women will be able to access abortion medication. Abortion rights groups are working very hard at the moment. It's one of the big things that's happening to educate women in states where abortion would be banned and let them know that there are these pills that they can order from an overseas pharmacy if necessary and take at home without anyone knowing about it. And it's a slightly sort of difficult area because there are problems associated, obviously, with breaking the law in that way, particularly if a woman um, bleeds and needs medical care. But I think the abortion medication has basically transformed the landscape of abortion across the world. And, and it will do so to a huge degree in America if Roe is overturned.
2: I think one interesting question that arises is that as these fashion pills become more widespread, how will states that ban abortion respond? I mean, will there be, I'm sure they'll be made illegal, but enforcing their illegality would require searching people's mail. Yeah. Are these states prepared to do that? Are they prepared to For all the contempt that Alito has for the notion of a constitutional right to privacy, I think people, and not just liberals, may be really uncomfortable with the idea that the government will open the mail of anyone it suspects for any reason to be receiving these pills.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, I think fear is going to be quite a powerful tool here because one of the effects of abortion medication obviously causes women's uh, uteruses to cramp and they can bleed quite heavily. And, and that's not in itself unsafe, but it's, it can cause women to panic. So they will go to hospitals and they will call doctors. That the abortion pill providers and the groups that are trying to educate women about their existence say that the, a doctor can't tell the difference between a, a natural miscarriage and an abortion, so that they should tell doctors that they've had a miscarriage. But obviously that won't happen in some cases. And I think there's there's real concern that um, red states will pass laws that are just basically designed to terrorize women and doctors, um, and and that might be the most powerful thing they can do because you can't police the use of abortion medication.
0: I mean, you've written that in about half of states, or slightly more than half of states, if Roe is overturned, most abortions would become illegal, and these state laws would kick in and take precedence. Do you think that those laws? would actually be enforced? Or do you think state legislatures who've kind of had a free pass, right, they've been able to signal their toughness without having to pay any political costs for it. Do you think they might change those laws, even soften them somewhat?
1: That's a really interesting idea. So 13 states have trigger laws, which would basically ban abortion the minute Roe is overturned. They have a mechanism within them that they don't even need to pass any new laws. And then it's thought that another 12 or so would either um, sort of dust off old abortion bans from before 1973 or, or create new ones. But I think it's true also that some of the activity at the moment is to sort of let the justices know that this is what they want and opportunistic in that
2: sense. There are a number of studies that associate abortion bans with increases in maternal mortality. Does that remain a concern now that we have fairly, as you say, safe, reliable abortive fashion pills? How concerned are you about if these laws banning abortions come into effect, that that women's health will be in serious jeopardy in these states?
1: I think it's really concerning. I don't think women's health is a numbers game. It's true that ideally women would be able to access abortion medication as they do in the rest of the world in the first 11 weeks of pregnancy. But we know from Texas that women still need in-clinic abortions. And we know that abortion restrictions push abortions later into pregnancy and those abortions are more dangerous for the women and they're more traumatic and they're more expensive and we also know that if you restrict abortion access some women will fail to have abortions altogether and if they're very poor women and they have very poor access to healthcare, then I think we should be very concerned about what will happen to people like that.
0: John if Roe is overturned that'll be a huge victory for the conservative movement but it won't stop there, right? What will winning look like for the pro-life side of the argument in America? It's not like they're going to say, hey, we won. We can all go home now.
2: No, I think they're going to say, hey, we won. Now it's time to push for a national ban or now it's time to intensify our activities in states where abortion is legal. I think this is, this is the end of one major goal of the pro-life movement, but it's not the end of, of the movement at all. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to
0: consider what overturning Roe would mean for the future of the Supreme Court itself and how the parties will navigate the new politics of abortion in America. The Supreme Court overturning Roe would be a huge deal, as we've explained, for women's health care in America. But it would also be a huge deal because of what it signals about what a court with a 6-3 conservative majority might be prepared to do, what other precedents it might be prepared to overturn, how bold it seems to be willing to be, bold and powerful in a political system where it's exceptionally hard to get legislation through the House and the Senate and signed by the president. And so the court is often asked to rule on the most significant questions in American politics today. John,
2: this is something that the three of us have talked about a lot over the past few years. It is. I think the question of what American civil liberties are grounded in is endlessly fascinating. And to that end, I was curious about the language in Justice Alito's opinion. I found it quite intemperate. I was especially concerned about the phrase that unenumerated rights have to be deeply rooted in our history. That would seem to me reasoning that could have been used to maintain racial segregation, which of course is deeply rooted in American history. That language seems to me to cast a very skeptical eye on the Supreme Court's role as a guarantor of civil liberties, which is a position it's occupied most notably during the Warren Court in the 1960s, but often throughout American history. And so to get a better view of that, I talked to David French, who is a lawyer by training. He's also a writer. He's a very thoughtful, patient, conservative Christian writer. And he and I spoke about how that reasoning might be used beyond Roe. That language, deeply rooted
6: history and tradition, um, is is sort of boilerplate language regarding substantive due process. But here's what's interesting about the case. So in theory, if you say that um, substantive rights that have been located in the 14th Amendment are up for grabs, well, then that does include uh, things like same-sex marriage or contraceptives or... There's any number of sort of rights that at this point Americans take for granted. But in the opinion, Alito distinguishes the abortion case from those cases. He's saying abortion is different from these other cases because of its impact on, to use the Roe-Casey term, potential life, that impact on an unconsenting individual, in this case, you know, the, the unborn child.
2: I understand that there's a distinction between abortion and other privacy-dependent rights for that reason. But, I mean, consider the case of someone like George P. Bush, who's an office seeker in Texas, said that Texas should go its own way on the marriage question. And I could see right. any number of other politically ambitious governors or attorneys generals reaching the same conclusion. that that somehow this right, because of the reasoning in the Roe case, that same-sex marriage is now up for grabs. If there were a case that came before the court that asked whether Obergefell and Windsor were wrongly decided, what do you think the court would do? I I think that the court would
6: affirm Obergefell and Windsor, but I do think that it is not frivolous to speculate that there would be governors, and, and more than just George P. Bush, who would try to keep upping the ante on the culture wars. I do think, though, that that language distinguishing... Abortion from same sex marriage, from contraception, would be very important. It's going to be very interesting to me to see if those paragraphs are still there in the same way, if that is substantially the final opinion. Because I do think a Roberts or maybe a Kavanaugh, um, perhaps Barrett, would be pressing to make sure that this isn't sort of opening up all precedent. Decided under substantive rights located in the in the Fourteenth Amendment to due process clause, but I I fully acknowledge that there are people who would look at this opinion and say, oh well, we've we've now cracked open this legal issue. I don't think they'll find success, but that's speculation.
2: If the opinion that is finally issued is substantively close to this, perhaps with slightly more temperate language, but it overturns Roe, and Republicans. Control the House, Senate, and presidency in 2025. Do you think they they press for a national ban on abortion? Perhaps the problem that
6: they would encounter is that a solid majority of Americans right now um, do not want a total ban on abortion. So I think that there are Republicans who would see that as politically risky, in the same way that there are Democrats who see a national, Democratic-led effort to codify. Roe or Casey. We see that as politically risky as well because the Roe Casey restrictions are also out of step with where a majority of Americans are. So it's um it's a very tricky political issue, which is why I think in the short term, medium term, you're gonna see most of the action at the state level.
2: Even so, though, that leaves opponents of abortion effectively arguing that abortion is child murder. But I guess I'm okay with it if child murder is legal in Massachusetts, but not Oklahoma. (laughs) That doesn't seem like a coherent long term position. No,
6: I mean, there's going to be there will be an effort if if is overturned, there will be an effort to enact a national ban into law. There's I don't think there's any doubt of that at all. There will be an effort to do it, just as there will be an effort to codify Roe. Um, The question to me isn't does the effort
2: exist? It's what are its political prospects? Even with Justice Alito's reasoning limiting his decision to Roe, you can sort of see a future in which Americans have wildly different rights depending on which states they live in, not just abortion, but you can see, you know, democratic states passing quite restrictive gun laws. You can see perhaps if, if the Kennedy versus Bremerton decision permits public prayer, you could see schools with much more public prayer in, in more religious states than others. What does that say about the United States as a union?
6: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think as a general matter, the United States gets more unstable the more its fundamental liberties are delegated to the states. But then the question is, what are your fundamental liberties? If I have less, if I have fewer free speech rights in one state than another state, that's destabilizing. If I have fewer rights to sort of build an apartment building in one community than another, well, that's just part of our federalism. And Abortion prior to 1973 was a matter of state law. And it's interesting that the nationalizing of that issue in many ways destabilized American politics. So the question is, will bringing it to the states in an interesting way, will it restabilize American politics to some degree? Because this issue has kind of stood alone on its its own in an interesting way that other issues haven't. I do think, though... If we had a structure where fundamental rights, such as outlined in the Bill of Rights, these explicit enumerated rights, become wildly different depending on the state that you live in, I think that's inherently disruptive. I'm not so sure that a abortion fits in that category.
0: John, David argued there that overturning Roe would not be the tip of the iceberg, but he hedged a bit. What could follow if the court decided to take a sort of maximalist approach and the conservative majority really wanted to to go for it? Now it has six votes to three on the liberal
2: side. Yeah, I think it's useful to try to thread a path between David's sanguineness, which I really appreciate but I, I, I don't share, and the sort of catastrophizing that's taken place on the left which I also don't share. I think that you've heard over the past few days concerns that Alito's reasoning would impact Americans' rights to contraception. The court may well overturn Griswold v. Connecticut, which is a 1965 law that allows purchase of contraception, interracial marriage, gay marriage, all sorts of things. I think it's useful to consider these one by one. For interracial marriage, I think that there's no constituency that wants to outlaw it. Of course, you know, you can find some fringe trolls and bigots who say horrible things, but it's not the way it was even 40 years ago. The same goes for contraception. I think where things get worrying is gay marriage. I think you almost certainly will see some politician somewhere decide that his state can make its own way on gay marriage. You've already heard Greg Abbott suggest that Texas may want to revisit Plyler versus Doe, which is a 1982 ruling that requires states to educate all children there, even if their parents are undocumented immigrants. And the question there, I think, isn't just what does the Supreme Court say, but what does a conservative circuit say, say the Fifth Circuit, if they decide that Texas can, in fact, ban same-sex marriage because that right is not deeply rooted in our nation's history. The reasoning that I think is wrong, by the way, marriage is deeply rooted, and it's just a question of whether the Equal Protection Clause forbid states to deny that right depending on the genders. But what happens if the Fifth Circuit decides that Texas is right and the Supreme Court denies certiorari in that case? Well, then you have a patchwork of gay marriage laws, And I think that's undesirable and hugely wrong. That's the issue I'm most worried about after Roe.
0: Me and David French there said that the next thing on the pro-life movement's wish list would be a national ban on abortion. That seems really unlikely. It seems really unlikely they could get that through uh, the legislature. So what would happen next on that side of the argument, do you think?
1: It seems to me that one of the likeliest things for the, uh, the national anti abortion movement to focus on if Rose overturned is late-term abortions, which are so emotive and potent, and most Americans feel very uncomfortable about abortions in the third trimester. And the way they can do this is that something like seven states now, as a backlash against a possible overturning of rope, scrapped all restrictions on when a woman and for whatever reason, a woman might have an abortion, which is sort of something that is certainly not the case in any European countries. Like Sweden has a relatively late limit of 18 weeks. Britain has a an even later limit, but it's only 24 weeks. So I think that it's difficult to imagine that they wouldn't focus on that pretty quickly. And then, of course, there will be a push for a personhood law, which is this idea of amending the Constitution so that a fertilised egg has the same rights as a human. But I I think that would take a, a long time. It's a bit unimaginable at the moment.
0: John, one of the striking things about this debate in America, I think, is that American opinion is not so different from opinion in many other Western democracies. A majority of Americans think that abortion should be legal early on in the pregnancy and illegal towards the end. And so then the argument really is about where the cutoff point is. But in political terms, this question is very different in America. It's been such a motivating force on both sides. So to ask a question that might seem slightly low down after the ethical and legal debates that we've been having, what's this all mean for the midterms?
2: Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom is that it helps Democrats. I think that conventional wisdom is almost certainly wrong. Any passionate abortion voter is probably already sorted into their respective parties, right? And it's true that, you know, you can see suburban women being more convinced to vote for democrats than republicans in this case but you know suburban educated women were already moving away from from republicans what this gives democrats though is something else to talk about on the campaign trail something that's not crime or immigration or or inflation whether that will be enough to stave off the huge wave that appears to be coming I'm pretty doubtful. I think that they're in for a, for a rough election, whatever happens, and and really whatever they talk about on the trail. I agree with that. How about you, Mian?
1: I also think one of Democrats' problems is, is that the end of row is not going to come as a shock. You know, it's been expected for a long time. Its impacts are going to be on, on the sort of women who are going to struggle as a result. It's going to be quite hidden, as they've always been. Still, it's nonetheless striking that Democrats at the moment are making a lot more noise about it than Republicans are. Um, Republicans seem to be focusing this week on the leak. They're describing it as a distraction. They're not celebrating what it foretells.
0: Okay, well, let's leave that there. I suspect we're going to be talking about this again over the next couple of months. Me and John, you know the drill. Before I let you go, I've got a quiz for you. Roe, of course, rests on the constitutional right to privacy, which was first established in 1965 in the Griswold versus Connecticut case over the use of contraception, which we've already mentioned. The same year, Connecticut State Supreme Court denied the right to privacy in a rather different case, upholding a law forbidding parents from serving alcohol to people under 21 in their own homes. The Economist asked at the time, what could justify a law which makes it a crime to hand a glass of sherry in one's own home to a sophisticate of 20? So taking an early libertarian view on sherry drinking, America now has the unique experience of having two teetotaling presidents one after the other question one apart from joe biden and donald trump only five other presidents can reasonably have been said to have abstained from alcohol how many of them can you name
2: well there's jimmy carter carter's correct
1: was lincoln teetotal
2: i was going to say i think lincoln was he was we've got two
1: I'm sure one of the Bushes was teetotal. I'm just not sure which one.
2: Oh, yeah. George
0: W. Bush, of course. George W. Bush is correct. So you've just got two left. Uh, These are tricky ones, I'm afraid. You're doing well. You're on a roll. Oh, are these going to be some very obscure presidents?
1: That's a lot of not drinking.
0: (laughs) It is. It's a lot of not drinking, considering quite how tough the job is. Uh, Zachary Taylor and James K. Polk. I I feel
2: like isn't Rutherford B. Hayes the one you always guess when, when we don't know the answer? He is. I I mixed it up this time. Is Hayes right this time? I'm going to be really upset if he is. Uh, Hayes is right this time. Rutherford B. Hayes is correct. And the other, which I don't think anyone would ever
0: have got, is Millard Fillmore, who took a temperance pledge in his 20s, apparently. Um, I would never have come to that. But Fillmore is another good obscure president. He's very obscure. Rutherford B. Hayes' wife was apparently known as Lemonade Lucy. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go i think you guys did pretty well there question two teddy roosevelt was only a moderate drinker apparently but he's known to have enjoyed the occasional mint julep the drink dates back to the 18th century and is particularly associated with the american south of which southern sporting event is it now the signature drink the
2: kentucky derby
0: is the right answer. Over 100,000 juleps are consumed over the two days of the Kentucky Oaks and Kentucky Derby. A julep is, of course, a cocktail usually consisting of bourbon, sugar, water, shaved ice and fresh mint. Both of you are enthusiastic cocktail makers. Do you have a signature julep
2: recipe? I think they're disgusting, personally. I think they're much too sweet.
1: I think they're delicious, I have to say.
2: Yeah, I think just it much improved. You just muddle the mint with the ice and stir some bourbon in. You don't need all that sugar water. Or maybe use some rye instead of the bourbon
0: at the risk of offending Idris and other fellow Kentuckians. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite cocktail at the moment, Mian?
1: I'm I'm back on gin and tonics at the moment.
2: They're hard to beat. How about you, John? I think it's really hard to beat either bourbon on the rocks or a well-made gin martini.
1: You prefer gin martini to vodka martini.
2: A vodka martini I do not recognize as legitimate. It's a glass of vodka. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to have to end this here because we could go on all
0: day. Thank you, Mian. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you both. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan, Stevie Hertz and Nico Rolfast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know, leave us a rating and a review that helps us find more listeners. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. And also thank you to everyone who sent in pictures so far of where they listen to the podcast. We've had a lot of fun looking at those. I've been tweeting them out. We've had listeners everywhere from the Mekong Delta, South Korea, Washington State, construction site in New York, really all over the place. So it, that's been very, very enjoyable. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane, as the t-shirt John Fassman gave me says on it. We'll have more checks and balance next week.